The reading today is from Romans 2, verses 12 until the end of the, the chapter. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it, it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Great, thanks Colin. Uh, do keep that passage open in front of you um, to check that what I'm saying comes from it. Um, and we've prayed, so let's Let's get started. Who is good enough for God? Well, last week we looked at where Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, began his good news. Didn't we? He begins with the wrath of God being revealed against godlessness. And we, we saw that it's only against that dark background that we will truly see the glory, the wonder of what Jesus has done for those who trust in him. 
we thought about the fact that I'm not okay, you're not okay, but Jesus Christ can make anyone okay if we trust in him. So on to chapter 2 in Romans, and uh, Paul is now considering the, the world of the Jew. He, he's thought about the, the Gentile world and its idolatry, and he then applies it to all his readers in chapter 2, verse 1, doesn't he? So he's writing to a church, he's writing to Christians. He doesn't know the full detail of the Roman church, but he, he knows that there's Christians, people from a Jewish background, people from a Gentile background, those who may be yet to come to put their faith in Jesus. But he says to all, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges for impassing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You might think that that Gentile world in chapter 1 that he's been talking about is, is just the Gentiles, but no, he focuses it right down to every hearer or reader of his letter. We're in the same boat as idolaters. We're those who fail to give thanks to God We'll glorify him, we suppress the truth, we, we live and worship other things other than God. And we'll see that Paul makes exactly the same kind of application to his hearers of the Jewish way of going wrong. Now, just to check that this is what Paul is saying, look with me at chapter 3, verse 9. He's making an argument at the end of which his conclusion is, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Or chapter 3, verse 10. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. Chapter 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his side, in God's side, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what we're about to look at in terms of uh, the, the Jewish view of the law, if we think by the end of it, oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm okay, you know, I can keep the law. We've misunderstood, misunderstood what Paul is trying to say here. Paul is saying no one, not even one, keeps the law. Who's good enough for God? No one. Really? Really, is that right, Paul? Are you sure about this? No one? Now, as we listen to this, I want us to be aware of a reflex that we all have. I've been trying to work out what to call this reflex. I call it the accounting reflex. Not because I'm particularly anti-mathematicians, I'm, I'm married to one, or anti to those who like sort of reconciling accounts. Now, this is what we all do, whether we're naturally mathematical or not, whether we are detailed people or not, we all do this. What is this accounting reflex? Well, just as we have reflexes, um, you know, we have reflexes that you know, preserve our life. This is a sort of reflex that preserves our self-justification. I'm sure we're all thinking about the, the cost of living crisis, can we afford X, Y, and Z? Where do we need to cut our expenditure? What is our income? Well, the spiritual accounting reflex goes something like this. We want to make a record of our good deeds and put that in a column, our income, if you like. 
which can balance out our bad deeds. I'm sure we've all had conversations with people where they say, oh, you know, you know, I'm sure God, you know, I do enough good stuff that will cancel out the bad. And of course, as Christians here this morning, most of us, uh, if not all of us, Christians, we would never do that kind of thing, would we? Well, let's just experience the accounting reflex. See if you can feel yourself reacting in this way. Look with me at verse 6. It's what Paul says in his argument. He will, that's God, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. See, Paul is saying that God's judgment is based on works. And this is why our accounting reflex kicks in. Will we endure the accounting audit by God and be in the black rather than in the red? We sort of read that and think, oh, maybe it is by works. Maybe I do need to do good stuff to be justified in God's sight, innocent in his sight. So what Paul does next is he takes away the props by which we tend to assure ourselves that we will be okay, that we do enough good stuff. Remember, he's arguing that no one does good, but he makes the same point three times in different ways. So I take it that he thinks this is important for, for, for Jews in, in the church in Rome to hear, for those who have a Jewish background, who've become Christians. And he knows that what's going in the Roman church is that Jews are, or Jewish Christians are, are judging Gentile Christians. There's a lot of judgment going on. So he makes the same point three times, so I'm going to do the same. Point one, God judges by obedience to the law, not hearing it. God judges by obedience to the law, not teaching it. God judges by obedience to the law, not the covenant sign. So first of all, God judges by obedience to the law, not hearing it. Verse 12, look at it with me. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Paul is saying that those who do not have the Ten Commandments, who don't have the Old Testament, who are not Jews, will perish without it. They will be condemned, not by it, but by their sin. Yet the same is true of those who hear the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Imagine somebody driving down the motorway and they see the speed limit go from 70 down to 50, down to 40, and they slow down a bit. It could be descriptive of me. I'll let you work out whether it is to about 47, or maybe 44. And when the traffic police pull them over, I mean, who would say, well, well I saw the signs. I'm fine. I, I saw the 70 and the 50 and the 40. 
uh, and the police officer would say, well, I'm sorry, sir, it's, it's not whether you see the signs, it's whether you obey them. See, we may come to church, we may hear the Ten Commandments, we listen to the sermon, and yet we're very good at kidding ourselves with that reflex, that accounting reflex. Oh, I've heard the Bible this morning. I must be better than other people. And Paul wants to say, no, hearing the law does not make people righteous. It's obeying it. What's the law according to Jesus? His wonderful summary of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Love God 100% of the time. With 100% of who you are. And love others like you love yourself. And you'll achieve eternal life. But how many do that? Zero. Oh, apart from Jesus. Apart from that man. But the objection may be from the Jews in Rome who heard the law and even maybe those who had become Christians. But we're better than the Gentiles, Paul. We're not like them. Really? Says Paul. Do they never outdo you morally? Verse 14. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law... By nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves. I don't think Paul's saying they are a law to themselves in, in the sort of common parlance of our language. You know, that they're lawless. No, I think what he's saying is they have a law internally, even though they don't have the Ten Commandments. There's some who are not Christians who know better how to live well than Christians, we might say. Verse 14, even though they do not have the law, they don't have the Bible, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, where their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. You know, Paul is saying a remarkable thing here about those who are not Jews, those who don't have the Old Testament law at that point in history. The very people he's used as examples of wrath being revealed against the whole of humanity, those who worship images, the the, the Greeks and the Romans, they do by nature what the law requires. There's some who don't murder, who, who don't commit adultery, who don't steal. Because God communicates a general sense of his law to all of humanity. Verse 15, the work of the law is written on their hearts. Now Paul clearly doesn't mean it in a Christian sense. The new covenant promised in Jeremiah of the Lord writing his law on people's hearts. But it is an internal thing. Back to our speeding illustration again. Uh, I, I, it may be something to do with me. I don't know. But it's like somebody speeding down the road uh, and they don't see the sign. They don't see the 70 and the 50 and the 40. And they keep going, but then everyone around them starts to slow down. And then the person sitting next to them says, it's 40. And there's that internal witness, right up close, 
So m maybe I slow down to about 44. In other words, there is a common human morality. C.S. Lewis was, was big on this. Uh, this is what he says in The Problem of Pain. The moralities accepted among men may differ, though not at bottom so widely as is often claimed, but they all agree in prescribing a behavior which their ad adherents fail to practice. All men alike stand condemned, not by alien codes of ethics, but by their own. And all men, therefore, are conscious of guilt. See, Paul is saying here that even those without the law of God in his day, those who are not Jews, may do what the law requires, not because they have it, but because human beings have inside them a moral sense. The law is written on their hearts, not in the Christian sense, but in the sense the conscience bears witness. So we don't need to pretend, as Christians, that we're better than some friends, some family members, work colleagues. We don't have to pretend that we're always more morally upright. We don't need to compete morally. It's good that we're seeking to live the Christian life, which is a life of good works. But for non-Christian friends, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There's something going on, even in that friend or family member who's so far away, it seems. God witnesses to what is right and wrong in their lives. God witnesses that there's coming a day of judgment, they will feel guilt. And this verse should be a troubling verse to us, but also it should be a troubling verse to those who know some sense of right and wrong in the judgment day of God. See what Paul says, verse 16? On that day, when according to my gospel... God judges the secrets of men's hearts by Christ Jesus, or the secrets of men. It's a heart thing. I'm sure we've all um, come across the illustration that Rico Tice uses in Christianity Explorer. I think it's a very helpful one. Imagine that all that goes on in your heart were projected onto this TV screen. Even what's going on in your heart now was made visible, every lust in lurid detail, every word, would you stay? I wouldn't. I'd be so ashamed. You see, I guess most of us here would call ourselves Christians, and we know that we do not keep the law, yet subtly through our accounting reflex, we put hearing the word of God in that column of good works. No. God does not judge us according to the fact that we're here, that we're listening to the Bible, that we have our quiet time. He judges us according to whether we obey it or not. Is that what we want? It's not what we want, is it? We want to be judged according to the one who fully obeyed the law, the Lord Jesus Christ. So God judges by obedience to the law, not hearing it. Secondly, God judges by obedience to the law, not teaching it. 
Now, again, the, the law here is the law of the Old Testament, the law of first century Judaism, the Ten Commandments. And as we've been thinking, Paul is prosecuting all his hearers that they may come to the point where they, they know that they're not okay, that they trust Jesus to make them okay. They trust in Jesus' obedience to the law, not theirs. So let's keep going. Verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do not teach yourself. And this is a word to those of us who teach children, isn't it? It's a word to those of us who teach in Bible studies. It's a word to those of us who preach. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? Verse 22, you who say no one must commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? In other words, that, that's a bit difficult to understand, but it's likely that it fits with all the other examples that he uses. Do you do something in public that you deny in private? Whether it's adultery or stealing or profiting from idolatry, robbing temples. Verse 23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. It's a quote from the Greek translation of Isaiah 52. God's people in the Old Testament were publicly judged and humiliated by God in the exile. And this was a blasphemy of his name. Their disobedience led to the dishonor of God's name. See, our accounting reflex, how does it go? Well, I teach children. I must be okay. No. Do you obey the law? I'm a preacher. Oh, I must be okay. No. Do you obey the law? I'm an evangelical Christian. I take the Bible seriously. No. Do you obey the law? To love God and to love neighbor with all that you are 100% of the time. Do you? Do you or I do that? Well, it's obvious what the answer is, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it? No. See what Paul is doing? Just kicking away the props that we use to bolster ourselves up through what we do. As if somehow by teaching the law, it leads us closer to obeying it. Often it just means that we are more culpable in our disobedience. So God judges by obedience to the law, not teaching it. And then finally, God judges by obedience to the law, not the covenant sign. I think this is less of a problem for us. But it won't be a problem for maybe some who join us. Uh, it, it may be a problem for some who join us. Verse 25, for circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. See, the mark of belonging to the old covenant people of God was circumcision. It was something that had been suffered for. And Paul says... It only has value if you obey the law. Verse 26, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. 
For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. See, in religious terms, the outward sign of being part of God's people is of no value without the heart. A heart that seeks to obey the law of God. It doesn't matter how much somebody claimed to be a Jew through their circumcision, if they were disobeying the law, it was as if they're not circumcised. And a Gentile who obeyed the law was more a Jew than a disobedient one. That's what Paul is arguing. Now, we're all immersed in the cost of living crisis, aren't we? And, and the anxiety. And, and I'm sure that some businesses are going to go to the wall. I'm sure that over the next few years, as the financial situation worsens, there'll be more added to the list. Woolworths. Looked fairly impressive, didn't it? You know, Woolworths or it's Debenhams, isn't it? Debenhams has gone. See, what matters is not the sign, the outward sign. What matters is whether we're bankrupt on the inside or not. It's not the external badge, but the internal reality is what Paul is saying. It doesn't matter if we've been baptized. Number of people I've met who think that they'll be fine because they were baptized as an infant. No. It doesn't matter if we're known to go to church. That's just external. It doesn't matter what badges we wear. Even these lovely, they're lovely, aren't they? They're great. But let's not think that this means anything. Yeah, this top with, you know, the logo on it. We did spend some time sort of working out what the logo was, but it's quite relevant, really, isn't it? What matters is, what are we trusting in? See, once Paul has finished all this, he's, he's kicked away every prop and comes back to his conclusion. Chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law, so that what? Every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God because no one, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, the whole purpose of the law is not for us to squirrel away incidents of obedience in our accounting reflex. The purpose of the law is to remind us that no one does good, not one except the one who did good. So we might trust in him alone. As Tim Keller puts it, we may need not only to repent of our bad deeds, but our trust in our good deeds. Will we abandon trust in our good deeds? How do we know that we're doing this? Well, I'll just share from my own life the way that this has worked out. You know, there's been times when I think God owes me something because of my track record of good deeds. When, when life gets bad, I think, God, what are you playing at? I've left 
this imagined career in biological science to be a minister. He's let me down. Just trusting in good works. Or, or maybe we, we mow over just how bad we've been, as if somehow a deed that was 31% bad is so much worse than a deed that's 29% bad. When the only deed that we can have credit from has to be 100% good. All the rest, God rejects, except perfect righteousness. So why do you and I worry about how righteous or unrighteous we've been when the only thing acceptable to God is perfect obedience? Or maybe like me, you think, God cannot bless me because I've sinned in a particular way again. That's it, I'm beyond the pale now. I mean, my sins up until this point were a million and, and one, and now they're a million and two, and that's it. I'm beyond the pale. Does that not strike you as not believing what Paul is saying here? Ring any bells? Are you like this, or is it just me? I remember David Jackman, who led the Cornhill, tra Cornhill training course when I was on it as a, uh, a mere youth, uh, he said that the greatest threat to the cause of the gospel is works-based religion. And I thought, that can't be right. You know, I know the gospel. I know the gospel of grace. I teach the gospel of grace. No, he was right. In churches up and down the land, in the lives of Christians up and down the land, the greatest threat to the gospel is trying to be justified by works. Oh, we've always done it that way. That's the right way to do it. It's the only acceptable way to God. Oh, I'm not good enough to serve God. So I'll leave it to others. I'm not loving those people over there because they're so sinful. They're beyond the pale. I mean, they, they just sing the wrong songs. It's poison. So how is there any hope? If no one can be good enough for God, why bother to be good? How are we to live lives that are good, fruitful? How can we be a church that pleases God? Do we sin that grace may increase? No. How are we to be concerned for obedience without indulging our accounting reflex? Well, we can't just ignore God's law. C.S. Lewis again, God may be more than moral goodness. He is not less. The road to the promised land runs past Sinai. The moral law may exist to be transcended, but there is no transcending it for those who have not first admitted its claims upon them and then tried with all their strength to meet that claim and fairly and squarely face the fact of their failure. No one is good, not even one, not you, not me. So where do we look to? Well, we know the answer, don't we? But we, we need to keep repenting of our good works, justifying ourselves before other people, before God to ourselves. Remember the parable that Jesus told about justification. What's the answer to our accounting reflex? Sorry, this is a bit cheesy. It's an asking reflex, constantly asking God for mercy, for mercy. 
Remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? There was the Pharisee. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, proud of his good works. Pharisaism is, is alive and well in churches. How are we going to avoid it? Well, like the tax collector, God... Have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We just keep asking and asking and asking our gracious, wonderful Savior who hung on that cross, not just to take the punishment for the sins that we commit, but to rise again from the dead, having a perfect righteousness to give to people like you and me, so that we stand in God's sight, not as 31% or 29% sinful, but 100% sinful. We know that, and yet also 100% righteous in his sight. And what was Jesus' words of that tax collector? I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. The one who just cried out for mercy went home right with God because he asked for mercy. Whereas the proud religious do-gooder did not. And the lesson, Jesus' lesson, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you that you were so clear in your ministry and your Apostle Paul after that there's no one righteous, not one, that the only way that we can be righteous in your sight is by crying out to you for mercy. That's how we start the Christian life. It's how we go on in the Christian life. It's how we grow. Lord, please forgive us for ways in which we trust in our good works. Lord, forgive us for thinking that we're better for being here, hearing your word, or teaching your word, or having the outward signs of being those who believe your word. Lord, forgive us. Help us to trust only in what Jesus has done. Lord, we humble ourselves before you, and we look to you to exalt us. Amen.